Um, names are important, aren't they? Our names are important. Sometimes for very obvious reasons. It can be that a name can be a summary of someone's character, uh, particularly true of famous people. You might think of William the Conqueror, or Catherine the Great, or one of my favourites, the, um, the medieval uh, Lord of Burgundy, Charles the Bad. Apparently he was quite good. I wonder what yours would be if you had an equivalent name to that. Uh, maybe you don't have a name quite like one of those, but our names still have significance, don't they? We speak about name dropping uh, when we want to put someone's name which carries a bit of weight into a conversation. You know, imagine you phoned up to book a restaurant for me and there is no space available. What would happen if I said to you, well, tell them it's for Rob Miles? Nothing whatsoever. <laughs> but you know what, if it was... Um, if the person wanting you to book the restaurant said, um, can you, yeah, let, let them know it's for David and Victoria Beckham, suddenly that might make a difference. There's a table for two in the corner available and they're throwing in a, a free bottle of champagne or something, aren't they? Because the name carries something of the, the weight of the person behind the name. Um, Exodus chapters 5 and 6 are about the significance of God's name. Now, we haven't read the whole of those two chapters because it's a long section, which is why it's particularly helpful if you just um, keep it open as we think about it this morning. It's about God's name and the importance of knowing him by his name. As God prepares for this great rescue of his people, he says, I am the Lord. That's the message he sends to Pharaoh right in the very first verse, isn't it? If you have a look, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and say, this is what the Lord the God of Israel says. The instruction is, let my people go. And it's given in his name. And book the table in the name of Beckham. Stop in the name of the law. Let my people go in the name of the Lord. And Pharaoh replies, though, look, verse 2, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? Um, if you don't know someone's name and you don't know what it means, then Dropping the name has no impact at all, does it? I do not know the Lord, he says, and I will not let Israel go. And essentially, the next ten chapters, pretty much, are God's answer to Pharaoh's question. Who is the Lord? The answer is going to be the plagues and the exodus. That's who he is, the God who is sovereign over you, Pharaoh. The God who will rescue his people. And the Lord will do all the things that he's about to do, the plagues, the Passover, parting the Red Sea, all of that stuff, in order to say to Pharaoh, to the people, and also to us, this is who I am. This is what my character looks like. I am the Lord over Israel, over Egypt, over you, Pharaoh. But if you look ahead to chapter 7, verse 5, we can see that God's purpose is to reveal his identity to Egypt. He says, I will bring out my people and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. But even more than that, God is revealing himself to the world. Uh, and he uses that phrase again. If you flick over to chapter 9 and verse 15 just for a moment, um, as God sends Moses with instructions, this is in the middle of the plagues by this point, we'll come to it in a week or two, uh, he sends Moses with instructions of, of what to say to Pharaoh, and it includes this, for by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. I have raised you up for this very purpose, verse 16, 
that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed. Where? In all the earth. So it's not just Egypt and the nations. It's not just Egypt who needs to know the Lord. It's the nations who need to understand. And in fact, most of all, it's God's own people. And so chapters 5 and 6 are a, a great setting of the scene for the exodus which will follow. So the people will not only get rescued, but they will get to see and know the character and the identity of the God who is for them. And we need to know that too, by way of encouragement this morning. And when the rescue is complete, you don't need to look at this one, um, Israel will sing praises to God in chapter 15. And in verse 3, part of their song says this, The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Because they know by then. So we've got this great conflict. God versus Pharaoh uh, that is being set up here. And that's why in chapter 5 things get worse. They get harder, don't they, before they get better. Uh, Go and make bricks without straw to make them with. When those kinds of things happen to God's people, it doesn't necessarily mean that something has gone wrong with God's plans. It might mean, as it does in this case, that God has something to teach his people. It's worth remembering that today as well. So Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh with this plan for a three-day festival in the wilderness. Pharaoh's response is to make life much harder than it already was for the Israelite slaves, forcing them to produce the same output with less materials. It's a classic move of a bully, isn't it? He wants to alienate the people from Moses and create division for his own advantage. And we can see what happens. We didn't read the whole section in chapter 5, but essentially the orders go down the chain from Pharaoh to the slave drivers to the Israelite overseers to the workers, and the complaints come back up the chain again about how unreasonable it is and how we can't possibly do it. And Pharaoh, because he's a bully and a cunning one, is completely unmoved. You're lazy, he says. Just get on and work harder. It's your own fault. But in all of this, God is still in charge. He's setting up this showdown that will reveal his name. Pharaoh actually says in verse 9 of chapter 5, the Lord is lying. It's all lies. Um, And there's a direct contrast. Remember verse 1. This is what the Lord says, let my people go. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. This is what Pharaoh says. No, work harder, basically. It's important to understand that in in this famous story, it's not really a battle between Israel and Egypt, or even Moses and Pharaoh. The battle is between Pharaoh and the Lord. That's what's going on here. Whose name is more significant? Who carries more weight? God says they should rest to worship him for three days. Pharaoh says, no, they should do more work. And actually, it is quite interesting. Those two, those two words that in English we translate as work and worship, they actually apparently, I'm not, I, I can't read Hebrew, but they both come from the same Hebrew root. It might sound strange, but it's a little bit, I think, how, like how we use the word service, don't we, in English. On the one hand, Um, Service is about working. Serving is working, isn't it? We talk about servants. Who are you serving? On the other hand, we come to a church service, which is about where we worship the Lord on a Sunday. Both the Lord and, and Pharaoh think the people should work or worship. The question is, who will they serve? That's what's going on here. 
And it's a good question for all of us to ask ourselves. Who will we serve? Because who we ultimately work for is who we worship. Now, I don't mean if you're employed by someone that you worship your boss or your line manager or anything like that. At least I hope you don't. Um, of course, it's a good thing to be committed to and uh, to be diligent in what you've been asked to commit to in all kinds of situations, whether that's at work or at home, in your family, whatever it might be. But what's our ultimate motivation? In the end, who are we working for? Who do we most want to please? What's our bottom line? Whose approval do we crave above any other? And whose disappointment do we most fear? That tells us something about where our hearts are turned in worship. And then at the beginning of chapter 6, in verse 1, the Lord responds to Pharaoh's defiance then. As he says to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Now this leads into the verses which in many ways are right at the heart of, of our passage. Uh, we, we saw Moses' encounter with, uh, with uh, God at the burning bush a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, in chapter 3 where he meets him there. Well, here in chapter 6, verses 2 to 8, there's a further encounter, and God speaks to Moses again and gives him specific instructions. And once again, at the heart of it, is the revelation of God's significant name. I am the Lord. So look at chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. There is, as some of you may know, lots of debate about exactly what this means and what it doesn't mean. Um, does it mean, for example, that, that Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob, when they met with God in the book of Genesis, weren't actually told that his name was the Lord? And so they just used a more generic name, God, God Almighty or whatever. Um, well, that doesn't seem to be the case because the name the Lord is used in Genesis. So more likely it's that although Abraham knew that God Almighty was called the Lord, he didn't yet appreciate the significance of that. He didn't fully understand its meaning because it's only now in what the Lord is about to do in the Exodus that that full sense of what it means for him to be the Lord is going to be shown. And so in the next few verses, Moses gets a bit of a preview of what it's going to look like. Who is the Lord? He's the Lord who keeps his promises, who rules and who redeems. First of all, look at verses 4 to 5. He is the Lord, the God who keeps his promises. He speaks of what he's done in the past. He says, verse 4, I established my covenant with Abraham and all the others. And in verse 5, I have heard the groaning of my people and I have remembered my covenant. That's one part of the meaning of God's name. It carries weight because it comes with a guarantee. You know, we know, don't we, that when someone doesn't keep their word, well, then we can't trust them. It means unfaithfulness, doesn't it? You don't want to be known as someone like that in whatever line of work you might be in. Someone who over-promises and under-delivers, I think is the phrase. Well, the Lord is not like that. It's hundreds of years since he made those promises to Abraham, but he hasn't forgotten. He will deliver. Secondly, he's the Lord who rules. He's sovereign. He's in charge, verse 6. What he says goes, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. No ifs, no buts. 
And these are not just fine words, because as we're about to see in the next few chapters, the story of God versus Pharaoh can be summarized in just three words. The Lord wins. If you've not read it before, that's what's going to happen, basically. By Exodus 15, there will be no doubt who rules. It's not Pharaoh. Um, There's that phrase again in verse 6. We've seen it in, in a couple of places. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I don't know what's in the pew just in front of you. If you've got a pen or a card or a Bible, maybe you'd like to reach out and pick it up for me. Is there anything there? Hold it up for me, someone, will you? Thank you, Sue. Thank you. Well, I can see a few. So easy, isn't it? That's what you can do with your outstretched arm. You can reach out and pick something up. That is how easy it is for the Lord to defeat the most powerful man in the world, the most powerful nation of the time, just with his outstretched arm. That's all it takes. He is the Lord who rules. You can put it down again if you want to. Um, And thirdly, he is the Lord who redeems. That's his name, verses 6 to 8. And redeemer is one of those key words in the Bible for describing what God does, isn't it? And his character. That when God's people reach the promised land, they will have the concept of a redeemer within their own laws um, to to represent a close relative who has that that responsibility to to protect and to if necessary, take vengeance to provide for their relative if they meet dire circumstances, even at great cost to themselves. Well, this is one of the first times in the Bible here in verse 6 that the Lord is called Redeemer. And it's an early pointer to what Jesus is going to do for his people many centuries later. And look, it's not just that he will redeem his people from slavery. He's redeeming them for something new as well. And he makes this statement in verse 7, which again is so central to what's about to happen, but not just in Exodus, but in the rest of the Bible's story. He says, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. That phrase is going to recur again and again in one form or another throughout the whole Bible, in various forms, in the story of the Lord and his people. It's one of his key statements of intent. Time and again, His people are going to let him down. That is basically the story of the Old Testament, isn't it? Time and again, he will assert his commitment to making this true. He will redeem his people from slavery. They will be his people. And he will be their God in relationship with them. And that is not only his promise to Moses' generation. It's his promise to us today. What the Lord does here for his people who are slaves in Egypt is the beginning of the great history in which God will will come to earth to dwell among his people as the redeemer of those from many nations, even England. To redeem us from slavery, slavery to sin and death, so that we might know him as our God. Right through to the end of the story, and don't look at it now, but if you go to the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 21, when the new heavens and the new earth are revealed, There is the loud voice from heaven which speaks and it says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. That's the ultimate fulfillment of what he's saying here to Moses in Exodus chapter 6. So he's the Lord. He promises, he rules and he redeems. And these chapters in Exodus, ancient though they are, 
send us out today with renewed confidence to trust the Lord and to do that not only when life is going smoothly. You see, finally, the big surprise in this story is not Pharaoh's response to the Lord. That's kind of predictable. Sadly, it's the people's. God tells Moses back in chapter 3, I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless I compel him with a mighty hand. So what Pharaoh does is really no surprise. But the disappointment is the people. When life becomes harder, they say to Moses and Aaron, chapter 5, verse 21, May the Lord look upon you and judge you. You've put a sword in Pharaoh's hand to kill us. And in the next verse, Moses himself goes off to complain to the Lord. Why have you brought this trouble? You haven't rescued your people at all. What does God's name mean? Moses says, means trouble. The delay in God fulfilling his promises reveals people's hearts, doesn't it? When they're promised blessing, they like it. But, verse 19, chapter 5, when they realize they were in trouble, they start to complain about God. They don't know him. They don't know the Lord or his character. And that is quite a challenge for us, isn't it? I don't know if that describes you in any way at all. It's so tempting, isn't it? You know, when we get what we want, then we're passionate Christians. But when we don't, when God doesn't do what we want, do we start to complain? When we realize we're facing trouble of some sort, one writer asks this question, do we love the blessings of Christ more than we love Christ himself? Can we still trust him and bless his name even when trouble comes? But also, the great news is that we're not just given a challenge here, a nudge in the ribs to say, "How can you do better? We're given the help we need to face the challenge. To face trouble in life and remain faithful as believers, what do we need? Not to try harder. Like Moses, like the people, we need to know the Lord. We need to know his name. Maybe that doesn't sound like very much. But don't forget what we've just read in these chapters. This morning, his name is not just a title, it's who he is. It's his character. It's what he does. His name is Promise Keeper. His name is Ruler. His name is Redeemer. And those are not just words. So when you find yourself facing the scariest things that being a Christian might call you to face, in the different situations that you are found as you live for Jesus at work or at home, in the local coffee shop when it opens, your sovereign, faithful rescuer is with you. When Moses and the people struggled, God said to them, you will see what I will do. I am the Lord. When you face trouble today, in whatever setting you may face it, God says to you something even better. He says, not you will see what I will do, but you have seen what I have done. We have the privilege of looking back and seeing what happened, not just uh, in the Exodus, but at the cross. I am the Lord. The cross is the permanent and total reminder of the Lord's complete love for his people his commitment to us as he faces trouble to redeem us. That's the difference it makes when we know the name of the Lord. He has kept his promises, so we know we can believe them again. He has ruled the world. It didn't appear that way to the Israelites, 
didn't look that way at the cross. But his plan was being worked out. Not Pharaoh's plan and not the devil's plan. And he redeems his people. As Colossians 1 says, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son, in whom we have redemption. And there's an opportunity to bring to God whatever it is that you may be struggling with today. The reassurance is, if that is you, the job is not that you try harder. What you need is to know the Lord. The Lord who says, you will be my people and I will be your God. Amen.